This is episode 2 of season 2 of The Meridian. It is March 11th, 2022, and we are once again coming to you from Lund Observatory, Lund University in southern Sweden. Crossing our local meridian today, we have Diane Foyer, who is a researcher here at Lund Observatory working on galactic archaeology using stellar abundances, ages, and kinematics. This season, we are also bringing you some field reporting from the Nordic Optical Telescope on La Palma. It is not easy to observe with an active volcano covering everything with ash and lava, but more about that later. The Meridian. 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 Wow, is it that obvious? No, I actually, you know, I actually ran in today. You know, I'm I'm actually happy I don't have a car because, you know, you've seen the fuel prices. I have seen the fuel prices. You know, good thing then that you can either bike or actually run to work. Wait, you, ran, you didn't bike? I actually ran today. You, you ran to work? <laughs> I wanted to try if I could do it and, you know, I managed. It's a downhill into Lund, so. Okay, good. That's really impressive. How far would the run have been? Like... 15k or so i don't want to go like next to the car road yeah right yeah. still 15k so mm-hmm. you know i can barely uh, walk 1k so uh you know um, yeah yeah but what are we going to talk about today i thought we could talk a little bit about pluto okay yeah uh it feels like this is always like a debate that sort of comes and goes like should pluto really be a planet is classified as a dwarf planet now yeah and it's something that people get like very emotional and sometimes actually upset about. So how do you feel about it? Thing is, I guess Pluto has a bit of a weird history. You know, it was discovered fairly late compared to the other planets, so yeah. 1930. Yeah. But it was discovered by the Americans. And I think there's some sort of patriotic feeling to it, perhaps, that they want it to be a planet because it's the planet that they discovered. Right. Everyone wants to have a claim to this planet discovery. And then it maybe got, got classified a little bit quickly before we really were... You know, we really defined um, our planet. Yeah, yeah, I guess. So I guess what are some of the problems, though, that we sort of have with calling it a planet? As you say, it was discovered like in 1930s. So that's almost 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, But when they also in like late 70s, I -hmm. think, discovered it's one of its moons, Charon, they could calculate its size and they realized that, oops, it's actually not that big. Yeah. So like I think all the people don't know is that Pluto's orbit is pretty far out and there mm-hmm. are actually a lot of other bodies out there that yeah. are orbiting and so we just have started to be better at seeing those and we're seeing that they're the same size so maybe Pluto was the first of these bodies that we saw um and so you know just the time sort of tells because we've sort of discovered a lot more like there's Marke Marke, Humia, um mm-hmm. Ceres and like Sedna that are all like dwarf planets now yeah right uh, and like some of these are like comparable in size to Pluto. Like I remember growing up as a little kid, I had a mm. song that like learned all the, the planets in the Oh, line. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then these, these, you know, these songs are going to go on for ages. You have to mm. be singing for an hour long and then I'll probably be out of breath and pass out. So <laughs> um, that's an issue. <laughs> that is an issue, right? You know, and so it also dilutes what actually a planet might be. No, and, and I understand you because even so, when I think about the solar system planets in my head, like I go all the way to Pluto, yeah. it's, it's still sort of part of my 
I guess, planet vocabulary as such. Yeah, exactly. And even like the moons of our solar system are actually larger. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have Ganymede, Titan, uh, Callisto, and even Triton on Neptune. Um, mm-hmm. And actually the moon is also bigger than Pluto as well. So it's... Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the field sort of came into this like tricky, tricky concept of what you would really classify Pluto as. Yeah, since exactly. There are other bodies that are clearly not like planets yeah. like we, we couldn't call the moon a planet right yeah um so it together with a lot of other bodies was classified as a dwarf planet and yeah and as you say it's discovered by americans and i guess this is like a very emotional thing for some americans yeah uh, to be honest i don't really care uh, yeah. but i also have this idea i guess that um why should something that's classified as a dwarf planet be you know valued less than a planet exactly like I've studied both like giant stars and dwarf mm-hmm. stars, and it's yeah. not like in our field that we're like, oh, dwarf stars, they're like not as good as giant stars. We, yeah. don't, we don't make that distinction. Yeah, well, even dwarf stars are usually what we are looking at when we want to look for habitable planets currently because mm-hmm. they're much more easy yeah. to observe. Um, but we also have, even if you go into a higher scale, you have dwarf galaxies, which are much smaller than the sure. Milky Way and Andromeda as well. So. Um, like there's a, quite a few that orbit the Milky Way. Like mm-hmm. we have the Draco galaxy. Um, mm-hmm. and also in the Southern hemisphere, we have the small Magellanic cloud and the large Magellanic cloud. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, no, so it also goes to say that it's easier for well, nature, so to say, to create smaller things. Like we have more dwarf planets. We have like 70% of all stars are M dwarfs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and like, yeah, we have more dwarf galaxies than we have spiral galaxies. So it's like, it's more common to have these. And they're actually extremely interesting to study. Yeah, well, I, I know, for example, dwarf galaxies um, act as building blocks of larger galaxies mm-hmm. and simulations and stuff. So like, yeah, like it's really just because something's given this dwarf tile doesn't make it scientifically uninteresting um, no exactly in fact it could be the opposite case is that it's actually more interesting because we want to know well how did they how do you get from this dwarf case to mm. um some of the bigger things that we see? sure yeah and i guess it's also you shouldn't really get your emotions into like dictating your science I yeah guess. <laughs> exactly that's a dark road you can follow down yeah yeah uh, but i actually thought we could speaking of dwarf galaxies talk mm. a little bit with our researcher here, Diane, who actually works with dwarf galaxies oh, quite a bit. yeah, okay. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, yeah, so let's invite her. And now I'd like to welcome to the mic our own researcher here, Diane Fouillet. Welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, yeah, and thank you for coming on our pod. So happy to have you. So I want to sort of go right into it. Uh, when I've been talking to you, like in the hallways here, you talk about galactic archaeology, but you know, what is that really? Yeah, it can be a little confusing. Um, so normal archaeology is the study of like past human life and cultures mm-hmm. on Earth, um, and they study it through the materials left behind. Mm. So in galactic archaeology, the materials that are left behind from the past activity are the stars. So in galactic archaeology, we use stars to then um, see what we can learn about what happened in the Milky Way in the past. That's quite cool. (laughs) Yeah, so the stars actually hold a lot of information about the influences that a galaxy has gone through in its life. And we see these in the metals that are in the star. Okay, so, well, metals. So for our listeners who might not know this terminology, what do you mean when you say metal? Is it like iron or? Right. In astronomy, metals are basically anything that's, hev- any element that's heavier than helium. So typically. So basically everything. 
Yeah, basically everything. And often we talk about the overall metallicity, and that usually refers specifically to iron. But then we can look in more detail at the individual elements, which are formed through different processes, mm. and they can tell us a lot more about what happened in the past. Sure. Uh, how did you come in to study this subject? Well, it's really just sort of a happenstance of mm -hmm. who you work with and who is at the institution you study at. When I was uh, in undergraduate, the professor that I worked with studied star clusters. And so I did a little bit of work on star clusters. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved on to graduate school to get my PhD, there was someone there working on galactic archaeology with this brand new survey called Apogee. And so I got to get started with that new survey. Mm -hmm. um, and basically just stars sounded interesting to me. And so that's how it happened. Right. <laughs> it sort of sounds like stars are fossils in a way. Right. Yeah. So each generation of stars basically creates more metals uh, in a galaxy. And so when a new generation of stars forms, it's affected by all those previous generations. And when we observe a star um, in the spectrum of a star, mm -hmm. we can measure the amount of each element that is at the surface of the star. And that is basically a preserved fingerprint of the composition of the gas when the star was formed. Right. Okay. So, you know, looking at these elements, um, what have you learned so far? Like, what do we know of the history of the Milky Way? Has it always looked the way it looks like now with a spiral arms or? It's complicated, mm -hmm. but we can actually learn a lot through just looking at the stars. The main tools that we use are both um, the elemental abundances of the star. So the exact composition, how much of each element is in the star and also the kinematics of the star. Kinematics? So. Right. So how the stars are moving mm -hmm. throughout the galaxy. Um, in our Milky Way galaxy, it basically has three main stellar structures. So we have the disk of the Milky Way, which holds the majority of the stars. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of shaped like a CD, um, right. <laughs> if people still know what a CD is. <laughs> Um, then there's the bulge of the Milky Way, and this is sort of a smaller sphere of stars that mm. sits right in the middle. And then there's the halo, which is a more diffuse sphere of stars that sits around, you know, whole, sort of holds the the plane, uh, the disk, and the, the plane of the disk mm. and the bulge. Mm. Okay. Do you have a favorite component of those that you study, or do you study the whole picture? Well, I've mostly studied the disk of the Milky Way, mm -hmm. um, and recently I've been moving more. Um, further outwards and studying the halo. Mm -hmm. is, is there a reason for that? Or? Yeah, so I started with the disk because it has the most amount of stars and you can really learn a lot about the Milky Way with large samples of those mm -hmm. stars. Um, we sort of expect that a galaxy that's been left alone, like I said, each generation of stars creates more metals and puts it out into the galaxy. Mm. So if you were to line up the amount of metals in a star and of for stars of different ages, you would expect it to be sort of this nice, smooth sequence of more metals in the stars that were born more recently. But if we look at the stars in the Milky Way disk, we see that that isn't really the case. Mm -hmm. We find that there is an old sequence of stars that does follow this nice, smooth sequence. Mm -hmm. However, at some point, there's a really substantial disruption in that sequence which is an indication that some sort of other galaxy came in and collided with the Milky Way, bringing in different stars and mm. new gas. And so we see this. there's this disruption, and then afterwards there's a totally separate sequence of stars forming afterwards. So we know that at some point 
there was a big event in the Milky Way's past that caused this disruption. Wow. Do you know, like, how long ago that was? Yeah, we know that it was approximately anywhere from 12 to 8 giga years ago, so billion years ago. Mm -hmm. That's relatively early in the Milky Way's history because the Milky Way is somewhere between 12 and 13 mm -hmm. giga years old. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty early on. But even in that short amount of time, the Milky Way galaxy was pretty well established already. Right. So there was already a nice disk of stars. Um, and that's why we see this disruption in the chemical pattern mm. of, of the disk stars. Has there been more collisions since then? Or was there just like this one first instance? It definitely hasn't only been one collision with the Milky Way. We don't know exactly how many. They were probably a lot before the Gaia Sausage Enceladus event, mm -hmm. but it's hard to tell because those stars are really old and their motions have been washed by everything that's happened since then. Right, okay. But in more recent times, we know that there have been collisions with the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. We see small trails of stars on the sky, which are little dwarf galaxies that are in the process of being falled, pulled apart because they have fallen into the Milky Way. And we also see a pretty substantial merger that is sort of in the middle of happening. That, Ooh, cool. That's called the Sagittarius Galaxy. Uh-huh. And that one is really cool because it has quite a substantial dwarf galaxy at the center still, but we see these really big, long trails of arms coming off of it in both directions that indicate that it's fully falling into the Milky Way, it's being pulled on by the gravity of the center of the Milky Way, and the stars are starting to come off the dwarf galaxy and integrate with the Milky Way. So the Milky Way is really pulling this Sagittarius galaxy apart. Exactly. And it's a really powerful example of galaxy collision so close to home that we can observe in detail. Right. So I don't really work with ages of stars, but I know whenever people talk about ages, it's like it's very hard and we can't really trust ages. So because I know you work a bit with ages, right? So how do you really determine the age of a star? Yeah, it's a bit tricky. So you do it with a lot of caution. Mm -hmm. um, the age of a star is a very tricky thing to measure because a star on the outside doesn't really change much for about 90% right. of its life. So the things that we see from a star are just the light that comes from the outside. Mm. All of the things that are changing throughout a star's life is happening on the inside where we can't really see it. So the way that we try to estimate the ages of stars is through comparing the stars with models of stellar evolution. And there's a very important and useful diagram that we use, mm -hmm. which is called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Mm -hmm. And that basically looks at the temperature of a star on the x-axis and the luminosity or brightness of a star on the y-axis. And we know that for most of their life, stars sit on this very nice um, diagonal line in this diagram, which we call the main sequence. Mm -hmm. So really big, massive stars are hot and bright, whereas small, less massive stars are cool and faint. So that's where you get this diagonal line. Now, when a star starts to end its life, it starts to puff up and often gets cooler mm -hmm. and a lot brighter. So they move away from this diagonal main sequence line. So we can compare where stars are in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram compared to our models and use that to try to figure out how old they are. Right, and how accurate can you get that? Well, for a cluster of stars, it works really well mm -hmm. because all the stars in the cluster were born together, so they have the same age. Right. 
So that's really easy because in the cluster, it makes stars at this whole different range of masses and the heavy stars start to die earlier than the less massive stars. Mm. So if you look at the whole group of stars in this Hirschsprung-Russell diagram space, you can see that the stars start to turn off that main sequence and it sort of marches down in mass from high mass to low mass with time. So with the whole population of stars compared to the models, you can get an age fairly accurately to within less than 1 billion years, <laughs> which for stellar ages is pretty good. Right, okay. <laughs> That's still pretty good, even though it's like quite a large span. But still you could see that something sort of plunging into the Milky Way quite early on. Can you also see that like looking kinematically? So you talked about how you can see it looking at the like dissectomy and abundances in chemistry, right? But what can we learn from the Milky Way looking at the kinematics or the movements of the stars? Yeah, we can. And so that's where my research has started to move out into the halo and away from the disk. Mm -hmm. In the disk, the motions of the stars can be a bit affected by uh, another galaxy falling in, but they have very well-established orbits in the disk of the galaxy already. Mm -hmm. So only... Um, so the stars tend to pick up small motions from anything that happens to the galaxy. Mm. However, the galaxy that falls in, it brings gas, but it also brings its own stars. Right. So those stars now become part of the Milky Way, and usually those stars end up orbiting in the halo. Right, so they don't sort of mix well with the Milky Way yet. They, they sort of end up being like part of their galaxy, or...? Well, early on, mm -hmm. um, they are still very clumped together. Mm -hmm. So we see on the sky, uh, you can look up, and if you know where you're looking and you have very good binoculars or a telescope, mm -hmm. you can see little clumps of stars. And some of those clumps of stars are ancient galaxies that did fall into the Milky Way, and they're still together. Um, but with time, the gravity of the Milky Way pulls on those stars, and they don't orbit as nicely together anymore, or at least you can't see them clumped together on the sky. But some of their motions are still associated. And so if we look at a really large sample of stars in the halo of the galaxy, we can see that some of the stars have an overdensity or they clump up in certain portions mm. of kinematic space. Right. Okay. So they don't actually sort of clump up so that I could see it, but more they move in a Right. Unified way. So yeah, say. they move in a similar way still, even though they're not visually clumped on the sky. Okay. Are we sort of like safe now, so to say, with the Milky Way? Are we, you know, having any mergers like coming up or? Uh, definitely still mergers coming up, but mm -hmm. not anytime soon. Right. I wouldn't worry about it in our lifetime or hundreds of generations to come. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. there have... Uh, the Magellanic Clouds are mm -hmm. uh, two dwarf galaxy systems that mm -hmm. are just beginning the process, maybe, of right. colliding with the Milky Way. And so they will eventually become part of the Milky Way. Mm. And also the Andromeda Galaxy is on its way, which is about the same size as the Milky Way. Right. And yeah. that's going to be quite a catastrophic merger for both galaxies, <laughs> but it's still quite a ways off. Sure. But as I understood it, when galaxies collide, it's even like the space between stars is so large that individual stars don't really sort of collide with each other, right? Yeah, that's correct. Stars don't really collide with each other very often. Um, so to imagine the size of these stars compared to each other, uh, imagine that the sun is the size of an orange and it's sitting here in Lund. 
The next closest star to the sun is also about the size of an orange, but it's sitting in Stockholm. Right, now, okay. <laughs> now imagine that you throw a third orange and you try to hit one of those two oranges from outside Sweden. Yeah, that's going to be tricky. Right. <laughs> like as someone who who's actually, who comes from Stockholm, right, and been in Lunda for several years, like I've gone that distance with a train a couple of times. It's, it's fairly far. <laughs> right. So in really dense environments, like dense stellar clusters, mm -hmm. occasionally stars can collide. Mm -hmm. But generally in a galaxy or outside a cluster, it doesn't happen. Right. Okay. Sure. So we can be reassured that the sun, you know, will not collide with any other. Hopefully. Exactly. Uh, okay, thank you. And so, as I understand it, you're involved in several large surveys. You mentioned Apogee before, for instance. Could you sort of, you know, go through a bit about surveys? How is like that better for applying time to, you know, serve a telescope on your own? That's mostly what I've been doing, right? And I haven't really partaken in these huge surveys, but I sort of see that they put out, you know, a lot of papers, a lot of science. Yeah, so what's your experience with that? Because you're part of some of them, right? Yeah, so large surveys of stars can be really, really helpful mm -hmm. um, because, like I mentioned, the chemical abundances of a star are very useful, but mostly they're useful if you can populate a whole sequence of stars. So right. you need a large sample of stars to do this, preferably at least 100,000 or more, depending <laughs> on the galaxy you're looking at. Right, okay. <laughs> so that's not really a feasible number for one individual scientist to do. Mm. It's a very inefficient way for them to use the telescope, and it's an inefficient way for science in general because then just one person has all that data. Mm. So instead, what these surveys do is they create a consortium of people who are all collaborating together, mm. um, and they work together to design the survey, mm. decide which stars to look at, and usually they ask a certain telescope or maybe they're designed with a certain telescope in mind um, if they can use a lot of time on that telescope. And then over several years, usually between three to 15 years, mm -hmm. they then use that telescope uh, and observe between 100,000 and several million stars. Wow. But how do you go like about to analyze that? It takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. You can't do it by hand. No. Uh, I know that you do a lot of work, uh, very careful work yeah, by yeah, hand. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that work is very useful. Um, and Thank very, you. It's very complementary to these large surveys mm. um, because, for instance, you can look at weird stars that stand out mm -hmm. or that aren't part of a big population. But when you're analyzing 100,000 stars mm. all at once, you need a dedicated software pipeline. Right. Um, and you have to make some assumptions. So not all of these stars get observed as accurately mm. or analyzed as accurately as they could be. But you get a lot of data out of mm. it. So statistically, it works out pretty well. Right. Yeah. This might be sort of a, I know, nasty question. But do you feel like it sort of takes away part of the, I guess, romanticized beauty of being an astronomer and sort of sitting in the telescope and looking up at the sky and do you feel like the the higher sort of data output is worth that i think so but i mm -hmm. think it also depends on who you are right i am not very good at staying up at night <laughs> so i really appreciate the survey mode of observations because i don't have to be the one who mm. stays up late at night and controls the telescope and maybe makes a mistake because i'm too sleepy <laughs> right <laughs> but it makes sense but I can help out when we're doing the analysis and mm. writing code and mm. looking at the data after it gets observed in the morning. Mm. So I think it's a nice way for people of different styles to collaborate. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there's almost always an opportunity for people to go to the telescope anyway and see the instrument and maybe help out with some of the observations. Mm -hmm. The Galois survey in Australia, for example, they don't have a separate team of dedicated people doing the observations. It's people who are part of the survey and they take turns and they go to the telescope and do the observations themselves. Right. And are you part of Gala? I am part of Gala. Nice. Fortunately, I'm not in Australia, so I don't have to help with the observations. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> but have you uh, helped with the data from Gala? I've helped a little bit. They're trying to also estimate ages for the mm-hmm. Gala survey, so I've helped a little bit with that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So what are you working on like right now? Are there any specific sort of project or survey? And what are the questions you want to answer right now? So right now I am just starting a new project. Mm -hmm. We are looking at stars in the halo of the Milky Way. We know came from an outside galaxy. So they weren't born in the Milky Way, but they were accreted from another galaxy several years ago. Mm -hmm. These ones probably came in around eight to 10 billion years ago. Right. Doesn't have a name. Yes, it's called the Gaia Sausage Enceladus. Right. Yes, I've heard this. I'm sure you have. yeah, interesting. Yes, I think the name is up for debate <laughs> among some groups. Um, however, uh, that's the name that I choose to go with. I feel sure. like it's most inclusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're looking at stars from the Gaia Sausage and Saladus event. And when we look at those stars, we see that those stars in particular have very low amounts of aluminum in them, especially when compared to the Milky Way stars. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of unusual because a lot of elements we know are different in these accreted stars because they came from galaxies that are much lower mass than the Mm -hmm. Milky Way. But with the aluminum, we don't totally understand why that is. Mm -hmm. And so my new project is now to use models of chemical evolution in galaxies to try to figure out what it is about the Gaia Sausage Enceladus galaxy that ended up with these stars that have such low aluminum. Right. Okay. So it could be linked to like how aluminum is uh, produced in the galaxy or in well in stars right it incorporates a lot of different parts okay so it gets quite a complex question mm-hmm. um, so it involves how aluminum is actually made in stars but it also involves how the mass of a galaxy can affect how many stars of each mass are formed or how the mass of a galaxy can affect how efficient it is at turning gas into stars Mm -hmm. or even the rate of star formation throughout the galaxy's life. All right. So it could be sort of anything. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to use a very flexible model of chemical evolution Mm -hmm. and test all these different parameters and just keep tuning it until we can find which ones are actually affecting the aluminum. And sort of looks similar to your data, I guess. Right. So then the powerful part of this is to compare those models against Mm -hmm. the stars from the Gaia Sausage Enceladus that we see in the Mm -hmm. galaxy. But also we're going to test them against stars that we see in nearby dwarf galaxies, which are the modern day analog of the galaxy that brought the Gaia Sausage Enceladus stars. Oh, okay. So it was uh, a dwarf galaxy that came in. Exactly. We know that it was much Mm -hmm. smaller than the Milky Way and then it had a lot of gas. So we think it probably is somewhat similar to these dwarf galaxies Mm -hmm. we see around the Milky Way now. Do you also, when you, I don't know, when you look at those dwarf galaxies, do you also see this sort of um, varying uh, amount of aluminum in those two? Well, that's a big question. We don't actually know. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So one of the problems is that there aren't a lot of uh, measurements of aluminum in those dwarf galaxies. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a problem right now because we've been able to measure aluminum 
in a lot of stars inside the Milky Way, right? but we don't have comparisons to them outside the Milky Way. So mm -hmm. that's where we're going to need some new surveys to get these observations of aluminum. Right. And if anyone is sort of wanting to study astronomy is listening to this, probably a super cool project to do in the future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of speaking of future projects, are there any sort of instrument or one of these surveys or projects that you find extra interesting? Well, I find Formos to be mm -hmm. one of those very interesting surveys coming up, not only because I'm involved in it, but also <laughs> because it will hopefully measure aluminum in these dwarf galaxies. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed, yes. Um, so Formos is a really cool new survey. It's in Chile. Uh-huh, yeah. It's going to be part of the European Southern Observatory, and it's very interesting because it has its own dedicated facility in Chile. Oh, okay, and that's not very common or no usually a survey is designed um to be on a specific telescope mm -hmm. or they have to look for a telescope afterwards right but they don't usually get 100 percent of the time on that dedicated telescope right so this is a telescope that will only like have this foremost survey and do all of that science dedicated to it exactly wow in this case it's a telescope that's being totally renovated just to do the foremost survey mm-hmm in addition, it's a really cool survey because it's actually going to be a fully planned out five-year survey that will observe both stars and galaxies outside the Milky Way mixed together, and the observations are totally set before they even start. Oh, wow. So it's you, already planned out. Or when, when does it start? Well, hopefully it'll start observing in about a year and a half. Okay. So they should have the observations planned quite soon, mm -hmm. but they have just asked uh, several more groups to join the observation team. So they have a bit more planning to do. Right. Okay. But one of the new surveys that's joining is a dedicated survey looking at dwarf galaxies. Mm. So those are the observations that I'm very excited about mm -hmm. because we will get about 10 to 100 times more stars in these dwarf galaxies than currently exist. And we'll have hopefully measurements of about 15 elements for all these stars. Wow, that's many. Yeah. Including aluminum then. I hope so. <laughs> hopefully. Or aluminium, <laughs> depending on how you say it. That's really cool. How big would this um, telescope be? It's going to be on a four meter telescope. Uh -huh. And it's a multi-object spectrograph, which means that it can observe uh, many objects at once, mm -hmm. and this one in particular is going to observe 2,400 objects at once. Oh, what? So it will look at like more than 2,000 stars at once? Well, 2,000 objects. Okay. Some of them will be stars, some of them will be other galaxies, but yeah, 2,400 objects all at the same time. And so if each field of observation takes about an hour mm. and you get to observe all night for five years, wow, <laughs> that's quite a lot of objects. How many objects do you think will sort of come out of there? Yeah, my, my quick math is not that quick. <laughs> right. So in total, I'm not totally sure. But stars in the Milky Way, we're expecting tens of millions of stars throughout the course of the survey. Wow. And yeah, that's like comparable to surveys now that have a few hundreds or so of thousands? Or? Yeah, most surveys that are high resolution, so a spectrograph resolution of between... 20,000 and 60,000, mm. those surveys have a few hundred thousand stars, so mm. up to maybe 800,000, maybe close to a million. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine like the data that will come out of that. Right. It's going to be quite a lot of data. And so as I was talking about, they need a very robust and well-tested mm. pipeline to analyze all that 
data. Yeah, of course. And I was thinking, because last season we had Paul McMillan, also here from the Institute or Department, um, talking about Gaia. And I guess if you combine sort of Foremost and Gaia, you will really get a nice picture of the galaxy. Exactly. It's going to be a really powerful data set. And all of the Foremost stars are being selected based on the Gaia catalog. Oh, that's so every, nifty. So everything that, every star that Foremost observes will be part of the Gaia catalog. So it'll be a very, very powerful data set. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. I guess as a wrapping up question, um, I'm just curious to if you have like a favorite element since, well, I'm also an uh, 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 elemental astronomer, so to say. Right. I used to think that magnesium was my favorite mm -hmm. just because it was so nicely behaved. <laughs> and if you look at the distribution of magnesium abundances of stars in the Milky Way, it's a very pretty and classic uh diagram right okay however i am now starting to switch to aluminum just because i think it's so interesting mm -hmm. and we are now seeing all these stars with such crazy aluminum and we don't fully understand why and i'd really like to look into it more yeah uh thank you so much diane this was extremely interesting and yeah i hope you find that aluminum in the other dwarf galaxies thanks i hope so too Astronomers around the world may work on many things. Some write computer code all day in order to simulate magnetic fields on stellar surfaces. Some work on planet formations and others, like Diane, work on stellar abundances. Some of us apply for time on telescopes. If we manage to convince the time allocation committee that our project is worthy, then we may even get to travel to those telescopes and operate them for a few nights. In the fall of 2021, a team of Lund Observatory astronomers was granted time on the Nordic Optical Telescope in La Palma. Jens Hoymaches and the PhD students Nick Borsado and Bibiana Prinot, together with Elin Sandvik, who is a master's student here, and Brian Thorsbro all started planning their trip to the telescope. Going observing is always a huge undertaking, but this time it was a bit more challenging than normal. Not only is the team concerned about the pandemic that may cause complications, but there's also an active volcano to worry about. Kubre Vieja started erupting in September 2021 and was active for about three months covering the island with ash and lava. In the first episode of the series, we got to hear Nick and Bibi describe how their plane had to land on a neighboring island, Tenerife. The volcanic eruption had caused the airport on La Palma to close, and they had to take a boat to reach the island La Palma. But they made it to La Palma, and were about to head up to the mountain. Let's listen. Hey, Nick Posada here, recording at the Nordic Optical Telescope from the Canary Islands. Tonight is the first night of observing for us, and we're all really excited. While we have an erupting volcano a few kilometers away, the, the winds have been favorable and are blowing in the opposite direction, and the skies are clear. So there's a really good chance we might get some cool data. Also, the view is amazing. We sit above the clouds, so you can't even see the ground, and it's just stretch. It's like you're in an airplane, basically, and the clouds just stretch on for ages. We've been introduced to a lot of new and exciting and somewhat unexpected things as well, all of which seem to be a part of the observer's daily life here. So I've grabbed Bibi to help me go through it all. Hey Bibi. Hey Nick. Excited? Very much, but also very scared. Yeah, a little bit. First time observing on a big telescope. Yeah, also like we went through everything again with our group. We tried to like 
find whether we forgot something, we came up with some last mini questions, and now we're just waiting for it to get started. Yeah, yeah. So it's, we just had dinner and we're about to head back up the mountain. Um, but really, it was really cool, like, because we've just before dinner, we went through all these preparations and stuff. So um, one of the really interesting things is they're monitoring the ash levels on the mountain. Oh, yes. Yeah. So do you, how, do, how do they do that here? I think the funny part is when you, when you think of that, you expect they have some super fancy measurement tool to, yeah, to actually right? monitor that. But what they actually do is they wipe some surfaces outside yeah. and they have both like a surface that is sort of free and then also a glass plate within a container yeah yeah in order to sort of see how it is if there is no cover around it but also if there is some sort of cover around it yeah and they wipe these surfaces at some point and then just a few hours later check how much ash has actually actually fallen onto these surfaces yeah um so it's probably not the most scientifically sound <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing to do but it's definitely a good estimate on, on how much ash has actually fallen on, onto these surfaces and whether it's actually safe to open the telescope or not. Yeah, and it wasn't really that, like, technical either. It was just, it was paper towel and mm. alcohol solution, so... Um, just pat, 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 and you just hope you get something on it. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, for me it was quite nice to sort of see something low-tech still being used in mm. this uh, era. Because well, it, it worked really effectively and they had made decisions to not open the dome. Speaking of, like, why is it bad that we have ash? Well, I think everyone would understand why, but, like, physically, what would happen to the telescope if we got ash falling on it? I mean, she explained to us that there are, like, two kinds of ash in some sort of sense that, yeah. that could affect the telescope. One thing that you have, sort of, is the small particles, and they're not that big of a problem. You can just remove them afterwards by having these big cloth on top and just pulling it off yeah but the problem is if you have the bigger grains yeah ash grains or particles mm -hmm. and they might scratch the mirrors yeah that is a really big problem yeah so because we we deal with these really super polished um, mirrors and so a small scratch can really affect what kind of mm -hmm. signal that you get and yeah so you really really don't want ash falling on your um, mirror if you can but it looks like well, there's a good chance that it's not going to be a huge problem while we observe. So um, that was cool. But what was also really funny is that we got a bit of a tour of the place too. Um, and we're using a spectrograph that's called FIERS, um, which basically, if you don't know FIERS, uh, spectrographs break up any kind of light coming from a star into a rainbow. Um, and that creates a, a, an absorption signature that is reflective of what the light's made up with chemically. Anyway, these things can be quite large, like the you know, size of rooms and stuff. And so we'd heard all about this instrument that we're going to be using to, and we're like, where is it? And well, where, where was this? Yeah, we were sort of hoping that we could go into the dome and just see Fia standing there, yeah. you know. And then our night astronomer, uh, Sara, she just pointed at a building. Yeah, it's there on the ground. And we were like, oh. It's hidden. We cannot really see it. <laughs> yeah, basically, it was like this this roof roof with rocks all on top of it, yeah. <laughs> and that was basically it. And she's like, "Yeah, there's a optical fiber that feeds underground and connects to the telescope that way." And we we're just like, "Oh." I did not expect this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like, why do you think they buried it? Well, what? Why was the reason? Uh, I guess the reason that she said is, of course, the stabilization yeah. of the of the spectrograph mm -hmm. itself. One other thing that I think she mentioned was the temperature, that yeah. you have the sort of automatic cooling of, of the spectrograph yes. because it's outside and it's cold outside. Yeah, yeah. So for the other ones that are inside or for the other instruments inside, you have to 
cool them down manually. Yeah, and we have actually um, had discussions with Jens about why we sometimes we don't avoid using telescopes, but there are telescopes that have problems, not because they're not big enough, they're actually some of the largest in the world, but because their instruments are more unstable. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that we need. We need Not only do you need a big telescope, you need to have good instrumentation. And so it came, it basically is a cute little telescope. It was the first one ever built um, on this mountain. and uh, But it's been, I guess, uh, built with a lot of love and care. And so it's got, it works really well um, to a... It works really well, I guess. I think one of what was one of the cutest things I thought about the telescope was they had an R two D two. N two, you mean? Yeah, N two, right? <laughs> so it's this there's a, a liquid nitrogen container that was painted with the I two D two details, and yeah, she used uh, to cool down instruments. So yes. yeah. And as I said, that is not for for FIES itself because FIES doesn't need it. Yes, exactly. But um, when we were observing, there was always the possibility that uh, there was an override yep. from from other people that basically if there was, I don't know what, what exactly could happen, maybe gravitational waves. Yeah, I've like heard that. gravitational waves. Um, that could sort of take our time. And also our night astronomer had to do some observations before and after us, which means that... Um, she also had to prepare the other instrument. Yeah. Uh, which ended up in her having to cool down an instrument called Alfosk, I think. Alfonsk. Yeah, one of it. Alf was at least the part, first part Alfosk, of it. Alfosk, I <laughs> think. Alfosk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is an imager. I think it also does. Uh, yeah, low resolution yeah, spectroscopy. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But you use it as an imager, um, which means that you had to cool it down and so we could really see. Uh, our N2 in action. Yes, yes, exactly. And it was quite a cool um, thing to see as well. It's always really cool to see liquid nitrogen, you know. You think when you go to kids and you see these science shows, you get all excited. That sort of excitement doesn't really leave you when you're no, you're an adult doing this not. stuff. Um, so that was one of the cool things. The other thing that I had had heard a lot of horror stories was was the laser safety feature that they have. Um, do you want me to walk, walk us through that? Yeah, so one really cool thing about uh, the Nordic Optical Telescope, I don't know whether other telescopes have, have that as well, um, but the yeah. whole building is turning when you sort of yeah. uh, place the... Yeah, you sort of want to place the dome or the building and then the dome yep. um, in order to get the maximum rotation angle possible. Mm-hmm. So you sort of rotate that building, and when you get off this building, you sort of have to be careful... Uh, not to trip over this laser. So this laser is really there that in case of us moving the building and there is something like really stuck underneath the, the staircase or someone is has fallen and is sort of uh, in front of the building, you don't want to run them over by yeah. just moving the building. So yeah. there's this laser and we've heard horror stories about this thing. Yeah. Like you have to really take a big jump to get over it. Yeah. And... It turned out it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the nine instructor just simply just stepped over it, and I was like, "Yeah, it's not that scary." I was like, "Oh, uh, okay." So it wasn't as uh, dramatic, but it still was a bit frightening because, like, the idea, especially because our observations, we need this fully. We're going to observe for six hours straight. Nothing like you know, we want to be consistent, and so like, you know, what if I need to go to the bathroom at that point? And, you oh, know, yeah, we planned that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we. <laughs> Yeah. We sort of wanted to be to be sure that we uh, get sort of the ingress. So when the planet starts going in front of the star, we wanted to get egress when the planet uh, goes away in front of the star. And we sort of 
planned our bathroom windows around mm-hmm. that. So we sort of allowed our team to go to the bathroom in yes. certain certain windows so we wouldn't accidentally turn it off in a very uh, important position during the transit. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I still have some respect um, towards this laser. So I yeah. always jump over it when yes. I go down at least. Yeah. Well, we actually did a run through of what would happen if we did trip it. We, uh, we all pretend, we all walked, uh, tried to get over it, and then Jens, quote unquote, accidentally tripped the laser. And then when he did, this big alarm goes off through the building, and then like we have to walk through, and then there are like there's some keys that you have to turn, and then it resets everything. And so we we kind of knew that everything would be okay if we did, or will be okay if we do this kind of observ- observing as well. So it's a, if it happens, we're we're ready for it. Um, it doesn't make us a little bit more, a little less scared. But um, speaking of being scared, uh, do you think we're ready for this? I would say yes. I, I, I want to say yes too. I think um, we've gone through this so many times. Yeah. We've put everything into into this form. We've created the, I think, observation blocks. Is yeah. OB standing for, yeah, right? So, yeah, we call them OBs, yes. So. <laughs> the observation blocks. We've gone through with our team, so. Let's get this night started. I think we should. This was the second episode of the second season of Meridian. It was hosted by Rebecca Forsberg and Nicholas Borsado, and our producer, Anna Anadotir. Our guest today was Diane Fourier, and Bibiana Pruneau assisted with the field reporting at La Palma. If you have any comments or questions about the show, then feel free to reach out to us via our emails or the Lund Observatory Twitter account. In our theme at the beginning of the show, we could hear members of the research school Astronomics Ungdom held here at Lund Observatory last summer. Make sure you tune in to next week's episode when we will have Nikolai Piskanov crossing our meridian to talk about his research. Thank you for listening.